Donald Trump is in the final stages of writing the final chapters of his first term in office as President of the United States and is ready to put his record up for review for the American people to judge. The question is, how will they grade him in November? Nicholas Giorgiano is a professor of political science at Suffolk Community College. He joined me this week to provide his political talking points on everything going on on Pennsylvania Avenue and beyond. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. So, Nicholas, if you're ready, we'll welcome you to the show, and we're excited uh, to talk a little uh, U.S. politics with you this morning. So, great to see you, and thanks for being here. Ready whenever you are. So, when we look at what the president is trying to do to, to try and catch up to Joe Biden in the polls, I know that he recently fired a Brad Parscale. Um, so, I'm just wondering uh, your thoughts on the move uh, and what it means and signals for the president. Well, I think that when we look at President Trump and his campaign, he has a history of changing campaign managers at certain times. So obviously the polls that have been coming out have been showing that President Trump has been falling in the polls. And so he decided that now is the right time to make this switch. So I'm not surprised that he's done it. If we look back to his previous campaign in 2016, you'll see that he switched campaign managers three times. He had Corey Lewandowski, then Paul Manafort, and then he had Kellyanne Conway. So this is par for the course for President Trump, where it's constantly a rotating cycle of people coming in and out. And tell me, what do you think about the future of the Republican Party if the president wins or loses? Well, that's something that's difficult. I think that as of right now in the current state of politics, I think both the Republican Party and the Democrat Party face significant challenges because there are a lot of people that are just simply tired of the two parties that exist. For the Republican Party, as far as where they stand, no one really knows. I mean, if you looked at American politics for the last six weeks, many of the Republicans have actually been pretty silent. They've been pretty quiet about everything going on. And so what's their platform? What, what, where's their part? What's the direction of the party? Where are they going? Where, where's their contract with America? like Newt Gingrich put out there in the 1990s. And it's a little hard to see. You don't have Republicans talking about any of the issues. You don't have them pushing back against any of the uh, violence that we're seeing in the inner cities. And right now, there's a, an opening for them. They can go into communities that they've long ignored. I mean, they've ignored minority communities. They've ignored communities that have been in poverty, the lowest socioeconomic areas, because 
they're not comfortable going into those communities. But now they have an opportunity to go and speak to those communities, find out what the needs are of those communities, and start to develop policy proposals of how they're going to help those communities. And yet you hear nothing. So it's really hard to predict where the Republican Party is going to be if they don't speak up. Uh, I think they need to if they want to remain in office, if they want to get reelected. As far as the party itself, we'll see where that goes. But I also think the Democrat Party has a unique challenge as well because they have the, the far left has taken over that party and the blue dog and the moderate Democrats, the centrist Democrats, have largely been marginalized within their party as well. And so is America at the center left scale now where it used to be they were at the center right scale and we simply don't know this election will be the one that determines the course of where we go in american politics and to talk about that so i'm wondering just one follow-up on that issue what do you think this election means for the composition of the senate and do you think uh, the democrats can hold on to the house here's the thing Election pol electoral politics actually usually is fairly easy to predict from a political science standpoint. I mean, it, it pretty much goes the way we anticipate. And then 2016 happened, where most of the political so-called experts actually got it wrong. I mean, I know I didn't anticipate President Trump winning the Republican nomination. I didn't anticipate him necessarily winning the presidency when I was looking at all the data and the polls, uh, but he did. So as of right now, it's really hard to predict. If you would have told me at the beginning in January of 2020 that the United States would have a coronavirus pandemic that we're fighting, that we would have seen uh, the death of George Floyd spark massive protests and end up turning into a certain type of movement, I wouldn't have predicted this. And so this changes the dynamic. So we now have coronavirus, we have the economy, which certainly has been devastated by the coronavirus and you have the protests there's violence in inner cities that is surging so it's really hard to predict now if joe biden does win he's going to win the senate as well and he also will retain the house the house will stay democrat and you'll have a unified democrat government if president trump wins then the senate will stay republican as far as the House, that's up in the air. Uh, it still may stay Democrat. That, I can't say, would go Republican if President Trump wins. And can you tell me, what did you make of the uh, Rose Garden press conference that the president recently had? And secondarily, what did you think of, of him, uh, his decision uh, to bring back the White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, briefings? I think that they, they brought back the briefing simply because we are seeing surges throughout the United States, not just in the South, but also in the West as well, in places like California as well. Um, the only places where we're seeing it stable is places like New York right now. So as far as President Trump and his engagement with the press, I mean, I've been following politics since I was a kid. I remember, you know, listening to Reagan and Bush Sr. and Clinton and Bush Jr., Obama. I've never seen a president engage with the press as much as President Trump does. I mean, it, it's such a weird relationship they have because obviously you could see the press despises President Trump. You, you could just see that by the questions, by the, the way they act towards him, the way they treat him. And you could see the president despises the press. I mean, he, here's a president that has labeled the press as fake news, the enemy of the people, yet they love each other because they need each other. 
That's how their relationship works. The press gets ratings. President Trump is a ratings goldmine for them. And so it's a weird relationship that they have. It's a love-hate relationship that they have. And President Trump will basically is the first president that will go to the press at any point and just answer questions totally unscripted. We've never seen anything like this. And what did you think of the uh, Chris Wallace interview this past Sunday? Um, I mean, you know, it's President Trump. He, he engages in the back and forth with the press. He doesn't mind getting dirty and he doesn't mind calling out the press. Him and Chris Wallace certainly don't have a good relationship. That, that was clear. And Chris Wallace has been extraordinarily critical of President Trump. And President Trump's going to hit back whenever he doesn't like critical press coverage. He's going to hit back and he's going to present other information. The big part about the interview with Chris Wallace that got a lot of attention was the fact that President Trump said Joe Biden didn't call for a defunding of the police. And Chris Wallace tried to fact check him on the news and everyone in the media ran with it. Um, but the reality is that Biden has come out and said that he does support the moving of money around, that he does support taking money away from the police in order to give it to other parts of government entities that could help in social services or whatever it may be. Um, so I, I think the press is antagonistic and I think President Trump could be antagonistic. There's no doubt about it. And that's the way he likes to play in politics. And that's what's led him to become successful and actually get into office in the first place. Uh, now, what did you think of his uh, decision uh, to commute the sentence of Roger Stone as well? If I was advising him, I, I would have actually told him not to commute the sentence of Roger Stone just yet. I would have told him, uh, let the Roger Stone saga play out in the courts because there were appeals going on as far as heading up to the Supreme Court, whether or not Roger Stone actually got a fair trial. I mean, Roger Stone should have gotten a new trial. There's no doubt about it. You had a biased judge that was clearly biased from the beginning. But more importantly, the jury four person actually had tweets and was a Democrat activist. Prior to sitting on the Roger Stone trial, she actually spoke about the case and how she hopes President Trump and all his associates would be in jail. So immediately that taints the jury. And I think Roger Stone should have gotten a new trial. Now, President Trump decided to commute the sentence of Roger Stone because he was supposed to go into prison that week, and he decided that now was the time. So I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the commutation, but what I do know is that, once again, it's President Trump being President Trump. No other president would have commuted that sentence until the last day of office because of the controversy. President Trump doesn't mind the controversies. Other presidents, they try and avoid the controversies. So they wait until their last day of office because they know that they're going to be out. So there's going to be less criticism. And that's at least President Trump's upfront and honest about that. But what does concern me is all these people that do complain about the Roger Stone commutation, they've been largely silent when it comes to the abuse of power within government. I speak often about the abuses of power within our bureaucracy whether it's law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies, whether it's the Department of Agriculture, no matter what agency it is, I call out the abuses of the bureaucracy that exists. And people have largely remained silent about the abuses in the bureaucracy. And I think that's much more important. We either need to hold everyone to the same standard or we don't have any standards at all. Because what Roger Stone did 
is no different than what James Clapper did when he was sitting in front of the United States Senate and openly lied, saying that the government wasn't spying on ordinary Americans. Well, they actually were. Um, I don't know how many people are aware out there, but the CIA under John Brennan's leadership, under Director Brennan's leadership, was actually spying on sitting senators. Like, this was a huge deal. They were monitoring you elected U.S. senators, both Republican and Democrat. They were monitoring their phone calls. They were monitoring their emails, their social media posts. And nobody ever got in trouble for that. Nobody got charged with a crime. How could we have an intelligence agency that is spying on elected members of the United States Senate and there's no repercussions from that? So while I understand why people may be upset with a Roger Stone commutation, that's not a threat to our republic. Spying on U.S. senators is a threat to the republic. And tell me, uh, you talk about the divide which currently sitting in government, and certainly it, it's come to bear when we talk about the next uh, stimulus package for uh, relief uh, for the coronavirus. And certainly uh, the unemployment benefits for Americans are about to run out in August. So I'm, I'm wondering um, your thoughts on where the next a stimulus package should go uh, for Americans who are still relying on unemployment? Well, as far as the stimulus package goes, I do believe that another stimulus package will be passed at some point. Now, what form that stimulus package takes, I can't say. I can't even begin to imagine what it's going to look like. What I will say, though, is the when Congress does stimulus packages, I'm not necessarily a fan of them. Not because I don't believe in stimulus, but because Congress is not creative. They don't think outside the box. They think that just throwing money at the problem solves a problem, and that's not the way it works. Uh, I think Congress needs to create much more stimulus that will actually benefit the economy, that will actually make people return to the workforce and allow employers to retain employees. Fact is, the majority of the American workforce, I believe it's something like 52%, is employees in small businesses. And the small business stimulus that was passed went to businesses that really didn't deserve it. Businesses that had multi-million dollar corporations, it's just that each individual storefront they had filed on their own. Um, this was a travesty. A lot of other small businesses, they're not gonna be able to come back because of the rules on the PPP program. Basically, an employer would have to spend 75% of their loan on employees, retaining their employees, and 25% could go to other costs associated with the business. How can you retain employees if you're only doing 25% of the business that you were doing pre-coronavirus levels? The break-even point for certain restaurants may be they need 80% of their occupancy in order to break even. That's not even to turn a profit, that's just to break even. So I think that was a big failure. I also think the unemployment was a big failure. When you're giving people more money when they're unemployed than when they're working, there's no incentive to get them back into the workforce. I mean, if you tell me that you're going to pay me more while I'm not working, I'm not going to be in such a rush to go out and look for a job. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't craft bills. And I think that a stimulus package would go a long way if we supplement what a person loses in their pay. If they're unemployed because of the coronavirus, let's face it, it was the government that shut things down. It's not like, you know, this was something that the government knowingly shut things down. They knew it would hurt the economy. 
So I don't mind people getting unemployment up to the levels of what they were making when they were actually working, but they should not be getting more. The last stimulus package also didn't take into account the people that were able to maintain their work, were able to maintain their paycheck. I got a stimulus check. Now, I was still teaching. It was remote, but I was still getting paid my salary. Why did I deserve that stimulus check? It could have went to someone that is in much more need. Now, if government's going to give me money, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm not cashing that check. I'm going to cash I thought that so. Yeah. And I'm going to use that money. But at the same time, the government should have looked at, well, if you're still working and you're still getting paid, you shouldn't receive a stimulus check. And tell me, I, I know that uh, President Trump, one of the biggest uh, uh, platforms for his reelection or rallying cry, so to speak, is his ability to build a strong economy. But if people are still unemployed and the virus is still raging by election day, uh, what do you think is his uh, his his uh, arg argument for re-election, and what do you think is his uh, platform for a second term? And that's a great question, something I get asked all the time, and the reality is it's very difficult to predict. So when you look at the economy, that was obviously President Trump's biggest strength. I mean, the economy was running, firing on all cylinders. It was doing well. Then the coronavirus came. Then government had to shut things down, and the economy tanks. And I don't think we've seen the economic ramifications just yet. There's always a leg. I think in four or five months, that's when we're going to see the economic devastation and how damaging it's really going to be. But I don't know how the voters are going to look at the economic damage. I don't know if they're going to blame President Trump for the destruction of the economy, or they're going to say, well, it was because of the coronavirus, which obviously a pandemic is out of a president's hands. It's not like he has control over mother nature or the Chinese laboratory it may have came from. And so they may look at President Trump as that he's better prepared to bring the economy back, if that's the case. If they, if they say that the economy, the downfall in the economy is not his fault, then they're probably going to reelect him on the basis of he's the one that's better able to bring the, and revive the economy of the United States. If they do blame him for the coronavirus, then they're probably going to blame him for the economic collapse that has taken place and that will continue to take place. And then it's going to be very challenging for his reelection. As far as a campaign message, I think that's why Brad Parscale, where we started off uh, in our discussion, I think that's why Brad Parscale was actually removed as the campaign manager because there wasn't a real campaign message that's going out there. When a president is running for re-election, he has to explain to the American people why he deserves another four years and why the next four years will be better than the last four years. The, the president can't just go by his accomplishments and what he has or hasn't done. The president has to go what he's going to do in the future. And we don't hear that a lot coming from the campaign right now, and we don't hear it a lot from President Trump. I think that they're going to retune the campaign where we will start to see that campaign message trickle out, that we will see the president come up with definitive points of why he should be reelected. And I think that they're going to you know, start to label President, uh, Joe Biden more and more as the campaign moves forward. Now, uh, 
just playing devil's advocate for a second or looking at this from a different perspective, certainly uh, the initial response to the coronavirus wasn't, wasn't the best. Uh, you can just look at the numbers to uh, get that uh, conclusion. So if people are, are still concerned about the health uh, care a crisis in November. Do you think that gives an advantage to uh, uh, former Vice President Biden at all? To a certain degree. To a certain degree, it certainly does. Now, it, it's weird. I have a background in Homeland Security and emergency management prior to teaching full time. I actually was in emergency management and I actually developed pandemic plans. And what a lot of people don't realize is that state and local governments lead the response when it comes to. Uh, emergencies, disasters, public health, it's state and local governments that are actually in charge. Now, in this day and age, everyone looks at the federal government as if they're the be-all, end-all. So if President Trump does get blamed for the coronavirus and the spread of the coronavirus, that's certainly going to help Joe Biden to a certain degree. At the same time, Joe Biden needs to release and explain why he deserves to get elected, how he would handle the coronavirus differently, and how he is going to revive the economy. Now, he's tried to do that with his Bring Back Better plan, the BBB plan. He's tried to do that, but I don't think that he really has explained it all that well. And obviously, there are a lot of questions surrounding Joe Biden. So I think the most important thing is going to be who Joe Biden selects as vice president. I think that that's what everyone's looking at. And everyone wants to wait and see what he does. And then I think Joe Biden will get peppered with more questions about what he would done differently, how he's going to do things differently going forward. You could go with any platitude for only so long. You could say that, you know, you want to be president to unify America or that you would handle the coronavirus better. But sooner or later, you got to start to explain it. And as we start to narrow down, as summer comes to an end and more focus gets put on the presidential race, I do think that Joe Biden's going to have to come out with more substantial answers in order to win people's votes. Now, who do you think he's going to uh, pick as a vice president? And if he does win, what do you think is the biggest uh, policy reversal or first thing he'll do uh, once he gets uh, elected? Well, I don't know exactly who he would pick as vice president, but we do know it's going to be a woman and yeah. it probably will be a woman of color. Um, so the names out there are Camilla Harris, Senator Harris. You have uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth. There's talk about Senator Elizabeth Warren. I think that the, I think it's leaning towards Tammy Duckworth. I think that Tammy Duckworth is a veteran. She's a senator. She lost both legs while serving in Iraq. And I think that that's going to be a compelling narrative for the American people. As far as Senator Duckworth's uh, policies go, she is a little bit further to the left than a lot of centrist or blue dog Democrats. But as far as Joe Biden goes, the VP selection is very important. Now, that's not the best campaign message, though. Understand that. Because when you're running for president, most people pick who's running for president. They, they don't sit there and go and vote for the vice president. And so your campaign message, he has to figure out a way to walk a tight rope because a campaign message saying, well, pick me because my vice president will take over if I, you know, something happens to me health wise and I'm not in office anymore. Yeah. I, the vice president will take over. That's very difficult. 
As far as Joe Biden goes, I think that the uh, biggest policy that he will do is that he will undo a number of the deregulations that President Trump has done. I think that's going to be the biggest impact. And as I said before, if Joe Biden wins, the odds are that he's going to take the Senate as well. He will have a unified Democrat government. And the Democrats have already announced in the Senate that they would be looking to undo the filibuster, meaning that the Senate would now go to a simple majority vote. If that happens, then everything's on the table. I mean, you know, you're talking um, they can make laws in regards to guns. They can make laws in regards to speech codes. There's going to be major changes in the United States. And, And one place I would advise everyone to look is New York State. We voted in a unified Democrat government um, in the last election. And so people could look at New York State and see if they like how a unified Democrat government is run and operated. And then my final question for you is, if someone was to ask you to define uh, this current time in uh, U.S. politics, what would you tell them? Bizarre. Very bizarre. Um, you know, I've, once again, I couldn't have predicted half the stuff that happened in 2020. And we're only in July. So we're not even through it 2020 yet. So I don't even know what the rest of 2020 looks like. But uh, everything that I'm seeing is extraordinarily bizarre. It's troubling what I'm seeing. The division that I'm seeing is, is extraordinarily troubling. It's something I've been warning about for the last 14 years. As social media has now taken hold and become the norm, it's created much more partisanship in our everyday lives. People ourselves as individuals have become so much more political. So we're living through some difficult times. We're living through bizarre times. Um, I, ha- I never thought I'd see the day where, you know, you have people that will openly talk about defunding the police. I never would have thought that that would have been a campaign issue in 2020, yet here we are talking about it. So the state of U.S. politics is bizarre, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Hey, Professor, we want to take a few seconds and thank you for your insights and perspectives on everything American politics. We really appreciate your time, and thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks so much. Kevin, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.